So please uh, do settle yourselves down again. I always feel a bit uh, sad to break up the party. People are having such a good time chatting with each other, but uh, let's move things along. We have a microphone? Okay. So once everyone is settled and we're ready to begin, uh, we have a, a wandering microphone, so I would request that uh, people wait until the microphone reaches you so then everyone can hear the question and also the question will be recorded so that uh, makes it easier for the, uh, the audio. So please, whatever would be um, useful to, dis to discuss, don't be shy. Yes. Uh, you mentioned the blue pill or the red pill, but isn't it better to take no pill? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, the Buddha was called the doctor of the world. And... Uh, if, uh, if we didn't need medicine, then uh, life would be great. But here, this is where we're at, is that uh, we're not blissfully happy and free all of the time. Oh, unless I'm being too presumptuous. Hmm? That, that, that was the, um, the, the starting point for the Buddha in his, his teaching. In fact, it, it's interesting that he, his first inclination was not even to try teaching at all because he thought, that uh, humanity was beyond rescue. That was after his enlightenment. And seeing the, the, the depth of uh, insight he'd had to, to develop and the, the, the intensity of, of effort and struggle he'd had to make in his own spiritual training. And it uh, said that after the enlightenment, he cast his vision around the world and, and his first thought was that the, the beings of the world are so completely... Uh, intoxicated, uh, lost in their own uh, bubbles. Yeah? So they they uh, uh, they relish becoming. They they only know becoming. They existence. They they relish existence. They only know existence. They're addicted to to becoming to existence. But what they uh, what they relish uh, brings uh, brings fear, and what they fear is pain. So he sort of looked around the world and thought. There's no point trying because uh, uh, it's like a one person who's not addicted seeing a billion who are. Yeah, where would you begin? So in in the scriptures, it's it's wonderful really because it's recorded that his first inclination was there's no point trying. That it's 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 a, it's a, an impossible task. So then, according to the story, then this Brahma uh, called Sahampati picked up this thought through the airwaves and, uh, and then realized the world will be lost. The world will be utterly lost because the, 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 the mind of the newly awakened Tathagata is inclined towards not teaching. Um, and, you know, as a Brahma, they, the, they're around for a lot of Buddhas. You know, they, they live a long, long time. <laughs> so Sahampati, I think, had seen quite a few Buddhas come and go. And thought, well, this newly awakened Buddha, this totally enlightened being, is inclined to not teach, so what 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 can I do? 
so so the Brahma Sahampati beamed down from the um, the Brahma world and appeared in front of the Buddha, and said, um, "You know, it's true that uh, beings are are uh, are lost. There are many many beings who are uh, caught up in delusion, but there are beings with a lot of dust in their eyes, and there are beings with." a medium amount of dust in their eyes and beings with just a very little bit of dust in their eyes and so for the sake of those with just a little dust in their eyes please teach the Dhamma that you understand so uh, the Buddha then cast his vision around the world again and said yeah well actually this Brahma is correct that there are some with sharp faculties and some with dull faculties and so there's a few that, can, that we'll be able to understand okay so we are the, the beneficiaries of that uh, Brahma Thank you very much. <laughs> According to the, the mythology that uh, intervened and caused the Buddha to teach, was a catalyst. So when the Buddha started teaching, the, the Four Noble Truths is a medical diagnosis. So that experience of dukkha, of dissatisfaction, the fact that we're less than blissfully happy all of the time. The, you know, the, you know, in a way, it's... It, the, it's based on the recognition of you know, there is an ultimate reality, there is a Dhamma, there is a fundamental reality that underlies all things, that is the very fabric of all things. If there is this ultimate reality, why are we not happy all of the time? If that's the fabric of reality, why are we not blissfully happy? Why are we not free? How? How come? How is that? And so the, uh, <clears throat> the Buddha started with the experience of dukkha, that's in like the symptom, the, the symptom of the spiritual illness. Dukkha, not being, not being happy, not being content, not being at, at ease. So dukkha literally means that which is hard to bear, or like a, the images of that, that a wheel that's, that's not balanced on its axis, on its axle. And then the cause, so that the dukkha is the symptom, the cause of the illness is tanha, or self-centered craving. The prognosis, which is the third noble truth, is it's curable. It's the good news. And then the fourth truth, the eightfold path, that's the treatment. So it's a, it's a, a sort of fourfold medical uh, diagnosis. So um, that's the, uh, the, the framework for it. So in a, in a, in a, and maybe the people who wrote The Matrix were uh, knowledgeable about Buddhist, <laughs> Buddhist teachings. But... Uh, the Eightfold Path is, is essentially the red pill. And if we didn't need the medicine, then uh, we wouldn't take it. <laughs> so any other thoughts, reflections, questions? These times are for you. You were having a great conversation before I rang the bell. So, <laughs> so uh, don't, uh, you don't have to go all sort of quiet and hushed. Yes, there's a hand at the back then. On the left-hand side. Um, an observation, really. Um, I'm kind of getting on in years a bit. Um, 
And as you say, you notice the extra wrinkles and um, aches and pains and bits start falling off and one thing or another. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, I've started to realise how persistent this sense of self is actually and how resistant it is to almost anything. <laughs> um, Buddhism is a, a mixture of <clears throat> kind of theory and practice really, isn't it? Um, in my experience of it, theory, it, it really does help actually, but it can't, my experience of it, it, it I struggle with just theory and, and I think the practice is part of it as well. And I have noticed with um, mindfulness is, is, seems to be very, very good for this. And particularly, I like, there's a phrase that Ajahn Sumedho uses, is um, being the knowing. I know that some people don't like that as a phrase, but um, it's kind of mindfulness and kind of taking the self out of it, in a sense, and just being a, a, a very kind of basic awareness and it seems that the self finds it difficult to find a foothold in that. So I don't know if you're interested in your comments on that. Uh, yeah, well, I would agree with all of that. <laughs> the, um, uh, the, the structure of the, the Buddhist path is often divided into three, the um, pari, uh, Pariyati, Patipati and Pativeda, which is um, the study, practice and, and realization. So Pariyati is the study. So that's rather like you've got all the right medicines, they're sitting there in your medicine cabinet, um, but they don't really help you unless you actually take them. So the, the practice is taking the medicine. You can have the, the most perfect and appropriate um, medication in the world, but if you don't take it, it doesn't do you any good. It just sits there on your shelf being correct. But it's, on a practical level, it doesn't, doesn't help at all. And then the realization is, uh, having taken the medicine, that's the quality of well-being that is the result of having taken the, the medicine. So that, like I was saying, that the experience on the other side of the desert, when you make it through the, the morbio inferiore, it's that quality of, of well-being. You know, but this would be uh, uh, spiritual well-being. In terms of, uh, of the sense of self, yeah, I, I also find that phrases like being the knowing or... Um, uh, the way in which we can um, tease apart the quality of awareness and, ex and experience, or what you know, Lumpo Sumato would always use the word consciousness, or very often use the word consciousness, uh, teasing that apart from personal characteristics, so that in this moment, uh, there's the experience of hearing my voice, there's the experience of choosing words, there's the experience of, of the weight of, of this body on the chair the feeling of cloth on my skin, and put it all together and it's, it's a person, it's, it's Ajahn Amaro. But in itself, it's just feelings, uh, tasting, smelling, touching, thinking, uh, arising and passing away. There's a knowing of those different qualities. So that which knows gravity, that which knows texture, that which knows sound and meaning, is not gravity, it's not texture, it's not meaning, it's not, it's not a sense object, it's not a person. So that uh, rather like those reflections, and I'm of the nature to age, I'm of the nature to sicken, using those sort of reflections to rejig the perspective. So to take a, a simple phrase like being the knowing, or, or I, I, I like to reflect um, on a, a phrase like the mind is not a person, or the, the mind is Dhamma. 
So we, we take our mind, our memories, our thoughts, our feelings, our moods, really personally, I'm, I'm, I'm angry, I'm inspired, I'm jealous, I'm fearful, I'm sleepy, you know, I'm, uh, I'm alert, I'm in pain, I'm, I'm comfortable at last, you know, all those I am's. But if the attitude is tweaked, then uh, the, uh, the, the view can change so that those things are not created as personal. They're not put into the framework of I am or I've got or this is me or mine, but rather there's a flow of experience. And you know, that which knows anger is not angry. That which knows uh, agitation isn't, isn't agitated. You know, that which knows happiness isn't happy. It's a bit more radical. <laughs> that there's a, um, a, a quality of freedom that comes with that shift of attitude when mind is not seen in a personal way. And the, the last book uh, of, of uh, Ajahn Sumedho's teachings is called Don't Take Your Life Personally. So when I saw that, I thought, all you need is the title. <laughs> you don't really need any content in, you know, in the pages. It's just the title says everything. Don't take your life personally. And it's a challenge because we feel like that's me in the mirror. That's, these are my sensations. These are my aches and pains. These are my problems, my hopes, my achievements. And it really feels kind of crunchy. You know, there's a lot of um, grain to it, a lot of weight to it, substance. But when that's explored, and just taking a little phrase like, don't take your life personally, it it's kind of shocks the system. It's sort of, ooh, oh. How would you do that? Oh, is that an option? Oh, and exactly that, oh, that's the shift of view. That's the, the changing of perspective. And the, the various ways that, we can, that that can be brought about, that, um, uh, that uh, breaking out of that prison of habit, challenging those habitual views and perceptions, that the more that the heart can really be free, the more that... that um, the sense of self is uh, is understood as a you know as a natural psychological structure, but not something that has to be uh, a limiting factor in, in in this life or this this experience of of being. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, there is just um, sort of in reply one little practical thing I've started doing actually. It's you've noticed it. Notice how much we use I, me, and mine in conversation, actually, and in writing and things like that. It, it sort of runs through absolutely everything. And you can rephrase a lot of things, removing I, me, and mine from it, actually, which kind of, I think, helps a bit in a practical, very simple way to cut to a reminder and to sort of shift our perspective a little bit. It does. Also, notice how many times we use the word actually. No, I'm not getting at you personally, but it's uh, how the mind is looking for the actual. This is the true perspective, <laughs> and it, it will it'll grasp that um, and take refuge in in an opinion or in a point of view. And that if there's a uh, if there's an active wisdom, then it frees up even that. Kind of the way the mind defines things, or oh, now I've got it. Now I understand. <laughs> it takes a, an idea and and even takes hold of that. So uh, it's it's it can be interesting just to flag that a word like like actually or personally, <laughs> and that's put up a little flag every time that you find yourself saying that. 
and uh, or using personal pronouns. Yeah, I think you are. I mean, she is. He is. <laughs> just to, uh, just as you're describing, just to notice how often during the day we cast things into personal terms, and but also that quality of defining. Um, I say a, an interesting exercise to do just to how to to explore how much the mind creates the world. I was quoting that passage about what is the world, you know, the, and the, that in the world whereby one is a perceiver of the world, a conceiver of the world, that is the world. So <clears throat> just to take um, uh, something like like colour and to, to say, to re- when you see a, a colour, like I say, well, I call this carpet blue. Now, is what is experienced here and, and is referred to as blue, is that the same as what other people see? Oh. And that the, the subjective nature of experience. So, oh, I, I call this red, I call that blue. What do other people see? What do other beings see? What does a bumblebee see? You know, what does a magpie see? What does a worm see? Does it have eyes? <laughs> uh, so that you're shaking up, oh, it's blue, it's a blue carpet. I can see, that. of course it's blue. So, to to take that, that automatic um, judgment. So you can do that with, with color, also the, the meaning of words or sound. Like you hear a magpie, you say, well, that's, that's a meaningless, it's just a magpie calling. Well, to another magpie, that's a meaningful statement. <laughs> uh, to, uh, to us, these words have meaning, hopefully. <laughs> that these sounds are called words. And they carry meaning. I say things and people gathered here hopefully uh, receive those sounds. They hear those sounds and their meaning is replicated in the, in the brain, in the mind. But to a magpie, these are, these are not meaning, meaningful noises, I would say. <laughs> that they, you know, or to a bumblebee, you know, it's just, to them it's just a set of, vib- sort of the vibrations by those big two-legged things. So that the ways of, of looking at our habits of perception um, and uh, how we create the world and, and what we take to be real, to, to catch that and challenge it. It's, it's, if, you try to get, if you try to do too much with this kind of exercise, it can get a bit confusing or just scrappy. But just to make a little project for a day, like just to, say, take color or, or sound, um, uh, or or names, you know. The, I call this person Joshua. I call this person Susan. I call this person Savitri. I call this, and what is that? You know, I call myself Amaro. What is that? So that um, things that are automatic. You, the, the the name associates with a particular person and the whole story, and and just to to make a, a little project during the course of a day or a few days, how much the mind creates the person from a name. And to kind of catch that, stop it. What, what is that? What, what's, that what's, what, what's that name referring to, really, completely? So that, and you can make up your own exercises. You, know, you can be imaginative. But uh, I've done this kind of practice a lot in the past, and it's really, uh, actually, <laughs> revealing how much and continually the, uh, the mind creates the world out of habit. And the judgments that are made are so automatic. It's, it's, 
it's kind of frightening <laughs> how uh, so sort of vigorously and continuously the mind creates the world, and that and just taking a moment to to stop and, and say things like color or time, name, meaning, number, all these things that seem automatic and obviously real to us. So, well, we say one, two, three. Well, one what? Two what's? Three what's? Well, three. When we say three, what is three? It's a sound. Well, it's referring to the number three between two and four. <laughs> three. Well, three, three watts. And so part of our mind is going, well, that's a stupid thing to do. But part of us is going, oh, yeah. Oh. We create number. We create time. We create meaning. And it's, uh, our conditioning is so strong, we don't realize that we do that. But we just apply that reflective uh, attitude and explore that. In, even if it's just for a second or half a second, something in the mind opens up and goes, all right, that's fabricated, that's constructed, that, that's conditioned, it's formed. Oh. And in that, oh, <laughs> there's the intimation, the intuition of the, the unborn, the unconditioned, the uncreated, the unformed. So... Is that a hand going up or somebody scratching their head? No, it's a scratching, scratching a head. <laughs> yes, at the front there, Dill. Bhante, I'll be very grateful. I think I heard you saying in this talk, when you quoted the Upanishads and about the mythology and how there was unmanifested and then suddenly this awareness of I am and when there was an other and fear and craving and the rest. But I've also heard people who are Vedanta uh, practicing now, especially say, said actually when they say I am that I am, they're referring to Dani Dasana, the unfathomable, the unboundless, unconditioned, whatever. So is it that people do use it in that particular tradi tradition like how we talk about the unconditioned or is it about the thing that when you say I am you're really referring to the personality view, the Sakha identity? Well, uh, it's a good question. Uh, it's like many religious teachings are used in completely different ways by different traditions. Sometimes they're used in completely different ways by the same person. So you always have to listen for the context in which something is said so that in, in uh, Buddha Dhamma, I am uh, is a conceiving. It's called manyati is the Pali word. So the Buddha says, I am is a conceiving. Uh, conceiving is a disease. It's a tumor. It's a, it's a, a, a poisoned arrow. It's, a, it's an affliction. So that uh, definitely bad stuff. <laughs> yeah. the, that conceiving. Um, and so that that's the, the, the framework for that within the Pali teachings is that the I am is a, a kind of a symptom of that attitude of mind that's, that creates a, a separate I distinct and apart from everything else. Um, so within the, in some of the Vedantic traditions, say like uh, um, Advaita Vedanta, then also you've got a great teacher like uh, Sri Ramana Maharshi, then they take the I am as a, a synonym for the unconditioned. You know, I am that. You know, tat, uh, um, uh, tat, uh, I am that. And so then that is completely the opposite, whereby it's sort of 
the I am is taken in a completely non-personal way and is a, a completely is referring to a non-conceiving um, in a way saying so that I would say the in Vedanta the, the use of a, of a phrase like I am that is exactly the same as I would say chitta is the, the mind is dhamma or chitta is dhamma I say it's the same meaning um, uh, but you, the language is used in different ways so and different teachers of different scriptures, they, they will often have their own unique usage, like the way Lumpur Sumedho uses the word consciousness. So that's very different. And I don't know how many times I've had to answer questions. Like, well, I was reading this book of Ajahn Sumedho's, and he's talking about consciousness. It doesn't seem to really fit into the, the five khandhas. And yeah. So he always, pretty much always, uses the word consciousness to refer to uh, awakened awareness. But most other Buddhist teachers don't. So you have to, oh, this is Lumpur Sumato speaking. Therefore, the word consciousness carries a different meaning than if it's um, you know, a, a Pali dictionary or something. So that uh, you, you're, you need to take the context into account. And so then, but also with hearing any teaching or reading, reading any Dhamma book or, or text, it's, that's a, an important part of it, is to reflect, okay, what's the background of this? What's the context? Who is speaking here? Um, and then to, to, uh, to the degree possible, to measure what's being read or what's heard against your own experience, so that, so that you're considering, well, what's that talking about? When uh, Ajahn Sumedho uses the word consciousness like that, um, if he says something like consciousness is unconditioned, then, okay, now... If he says consciousness is unconditioned, he can't be talking about the vinyana that's that's there of uh, in like form, feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness in the five aggregates. It must be something else. So, listening to what he's saying, what in my experience matches the quality that he's talking about, and then he's, you, you're so you're using your own experience as the baseline, and then measuring the teachings of what you hear against that, that personal experience. And so if you do that, rather than creating a conceptual model, you're using your experience as the, the, the baseline or the measure. So what's going to happen is that you, every so often you're going to run into mystery. You go, well, I don't know what that's referring to. I have no idea what that's about. And then rather than filling up the mystery with an idea or a belief or an opinion or, a, or an anxiety... <laughs> It's much more helpful to just let that be open, to let that be unknown. Say, well, that's something I'm not sure what that's referring to. I don't really know how that works, or I don't really know what I'm feeling. I, I, this is weird. I don't, know, I don't know what this is or how this works. And just the, the skillful thing is to leave it open and then just to use the practice to explore those particular experiences. And, and my, the way I found it working is that if there's some particular term or a teaching that what, what is that about? How does that work? Sometimes it can be two or three years, three or four years, that it just sort of hovers around. And then often you, you hear something spoken, a different phrase is used, or it's um, in a, a different context than, than what you're used to, and then, oh, maybe that's it. There's a, like a, you've suddenly seen it from a different angle. You, you've picked it up and seen it from the other side. And you, oh, oh, that makes sense. So that uh, the, um, you're not just 
creating a conceptual map and carrying your map around, but you're really applying the teachings to how you know, things are experienced and then seeing what really brings about that ending of dukkha, that, that brings about that quality of, of well-being and, and freedom that comes with that. Any questions from this side? These are, my right hand team are very quiet over here. They're beyond doubt, right? Yes. A question from myself and my wife. Um, yes, I, I some... thought you were going to say question from my cell phone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to give you some context, um, we've experienced some um, growth in our careers recently, successful growth, uh, which we think is a positive thing. However, in our careers, whilst we try and balance this along with um, the relationship we have with each other, our friends and family, um, we, we also want to remain healthy. Um, we just want to know how we can do that um, without, as, as you say, taking the blue pill and adopting that autopilot mode mm-hmm. um, and, and, and reading or seeing standards set by others, be it social media, for instance? Well, that's a good question. Um, yeah, success and failure are um, tricky blighters <laughs> because uh, our society is, uh, is very success-oriented. Success is an absolute good. Failure is, a, is an absolute bad, quote-unquote. And so that the more that your business profits the more likes you get on your Facebook page, the more Instagram followers you have, good. The more your business tanks, the, the more that you're unfriended, then, and so on, then bad. This is sweeping statements, but... Uh, the, so that the, the conditioning that we have uh, is towards a strong investment in success and failure, and it makes it very personal. I've succeeded. I, I'm doing well. You know, we're we're a good. You know, we're a successful team. Yeah. The um, I've failed. I've got it wrong. I'm being criticised. I'm a bad person. Um, so we, the the whole way that the mind relates to success and failure, and um, and how it personalises things is is really is useful to look at. And so uh, I I end up I talk about this a, a lot a lot because of the. Um, amount of suffering <laughs> created uh, in this area. So the, the Buddha was, was very practical, and he encouraged people to you know, work diligently and to, to do as well as they can in their, their family lives, their business lives, whether they're, they're merchants or farmers or, or you know, political leaders or whatever, or in, in monastic life, so that he was uh, very comprehensive in the advice that he gave. But the... Um, in particularly, the, the more that, that our efforts can be guided uh, by mindfulness and wisdom rather than self-centered drive, the better. So that um, in order to succeed at anything, the, the Buddha laid out these, these uh, four criteria. The, you know, the first three all work together. So these are, these are called the four bases of success. So the first one is interest, chanda or interest, or zeal, or desire. You have to be interested to do something, to engage. Uh, it's part, and then its other partners are virya. You have to be energetic. You've got to not just be interested, you've got to get up and do something. 
And then the third element is chitta, which in this respect means thinking about what it is that you want to do. You want to start a new company? Okay, you better get off the sofa and, uh, or at least pick up your phone and start making some calls. You know? uh, so the, there needs to be uh, interest, energy, and then, and then reflection, thinking things through. Okay, how do we want to do this? What do we want to do? Why do we want to do it? How's it going to work? So those three all work together. And then the fourth element is <clears throat> what's called vimangsa, or reviewing. Okay, having uh, been interested, having applied energy, having thought through what, we're, what we're, we're doing and how we're doing it, what's been the result? Is it working? Is it not working? So there doesn't have to be any intense ego involvement in any of that. That's just seeing a need, say that maybe you know, there's, the, there's a need for, for reliable car tires, there's a, a, a need for, for faster broadband, there's a, a need for... Um, you know, healthy fruit juices being available in eco-friendly packaging. Um, and so that uh, you're recognizing a need, you're working hard to, to provide it and thinking things through in a, in a good way. And then, did it work? Did anybody buy our tires? Did anybody uh, put, some, put some effort into helping us to, to develop the faster broadband? Did somebody um, help us to... Uh, uh, did it succeed in did we succeed in marketing this fruit juice in an eco-friendly packaging? Did it work? Is it successful? And then by looking at the results of what, what you do, then you learn from that. What works then, uh, and is beneficial and it brings good results, then you, you sustain that, maintain that. What uh, is um, not, it doesn't work or it's harmful, it has uh, uh, unforeseen negative consequences, yeah, okay, well, you learn from that. Uh, and again, whether something is, is successful and it's, it's beneficial, rather than, hooray, we've really made it, we're great, look at us, we're fantastic, you know. Uh, look at all the money we've made, or look how famous we are. Rather, well, this seems to be helpful, okay, let's, this looks like a good direction, let's keep heading this way and see what happens. Uh, or if it all uh, tanks and you, uh, you lose a lot of money, or that there's all kinds of negative consequences, okay, well, that's... That's a lesson learned. Okay, that didn't work. Uh, we've got a big debt to pay off. Okay, uh, what do we learn from that? Uh, ra again, rather than, than building it uh, into an, sort of an ego-based project, oh, we're, a fa we're failed, what, we, what will people think? This is a disaster. Um, I'm, a, I'm a hopeless person. I've you know, ruined my career or my relationships on the rocks because my partner can't respect me because I'm a, I'm a failure. You know, all those kind of projections. Like, we don't have to do that at all. We can recognize, well, that was a mistake. And in, in, this is not just within the business world. This happens in monastic life too. Yeah? That you can make good judgments and be praised for it, make uh, bad judgments and be criticized, you know, quite reasonably. <laughs> you, know, you, make a, you make a choice, it has a result, and you realize, oh, that was a big mistake. Why did we do that? And uh, you can't undo it, but you realize, okay, well, that's really painful. That really didn't work. That was a really um, bad mistake. Okay, well, we can't turn the clock back, but what do we learn from that? So we can, we can make it into, I'm a terrible person. What will they think of me? Um, this is a real disaster. Uh, my life is ruined. We can think that way or not. So the, um, also, the, the last element that I, was, I often talk about in terms of success and failure is um, an interest, another little interesting exercise to do, I would say. Interesting is another word to flag, by the way. <laughs> Actually. <laughs> uh, that uh, if you 
think back, say, five or ten years to something that you're really pleased about. You know, you got, you got your degree or you, you, you got the contract, you had the, 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 um, uh, the, 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 uh, the success experience. Everything worked out really perfectly. And at the time you thought, great, this is fantastic. At last I got what I wanted. And then five years later or ten years later, you look back and you, you realize, I can't believe I was celebrating. Little did I realize what was coming. It seemed like such a good idea at the time. What was I thinking? You know, how, how could I not have seen what that was going to turn into? You know? And so, so that what was a genuine success that maybe you were praised for or was a, something very positive, it became the cause for something really painful and difficult. Similarly, again, look back five or ten years and something that was a disaster, an illness or a, a collapse of your business or a relationship or a, a death in the family... And, and at the time, you would never have chosen it. It's a disaster. It's awful. It's bad. It, it, uh, it was unbearable at the time. But when you look back at it, you realize, well, it was horrible, but that was probably the best thing that ever happened to me. Darn it. <laughs> so what, what does that say about success and failure? What does that say about things going badly or things going well? It's, it, what it does, if, if we're wise, is that it says... If there's a success, don't don't get drunk on it and don't assume that it's an absolute good. It's just, this looks like it's heading in a good direction. Let's learn from that and, and see where it goes. And when things are, are painful or difficult uh, or challenging or go badly, okay, this is exactly what I didn't want to happen. Right. Okay, so what do we, what do, we do with this? How do we learn from this? And then both success and failure uh, become a source of benefit. And that... Uh, Liking and disliking are recognized to be of equal value. So that in terms of, of uh, your work, your career and so forth, then if you make your happiness dependent on how many Facebook followers, you know, Facebook likes you get, or how much uh, investment gets made in your company, you will suffer. I'm not a prophet, but <laughs> that's the way that it works. Is that, uh, because when things go up, You'll, you know, your, your, your mood will, will rise up, but when things go down, then your heart will break. That's just physics. You know? If you tie your heart to, to those changes, then as they change, then you rise, the heart rises and falls. So if you shift the attitude so that you're working with, a good, with, a, with, with a application, with interest, with commitment, but you don't tie your happiness to the results but rather you tie your happiness to the, um, the, the good intention and also the attunement of what you're doing with the, the natural field of, of life around you, what's benefiting you. Because if you're, if you're building a fantastic business but you and your wife are driving each other crazy in the process, <laughs> you're saving the world but you're driving each other nuts, it's not going to work, <laughs> it's not going to last. So you, you're, the, the joy or the satisfaction comes not just from the, from the bottom line, the profit margin, but it comes from the well-being within yourself and, and around. So like in Bhutan, they developed this um, different concept called the gross national happiness, which I think is... Uh, Bhutan is a very small Himalayan nation, but uh, it's interesting, even, first, even so G8 countries have had Bhutanese 
members of the, of the cabinet coming to, to advise them. <laughs> because I feel it's a very, obviously I'm a bit biased, yeah, but uh, I feel it's an extremely skillful approach that you're not just looking at profit margins, but you're looking at well-being as, a, as the measure. And, and more and more companies and societies uh, are shifting to, to see things in that way. Thank you very much. Okay, one last question. A, if you can wait for the microphone. It's just on four o'clock, so we'll call this the last one. I'm not good at short answers. So. Thank you. Um, um, my question isn't fully formed yet, but I'm just going to say a few things, and maybe there's a few questions in there. Um, um, so, so I... I've been I've been quite inspired by by the teachings, particularly in in April, and it and it came up that I could I I had an opportunity to uh, go to um, to possibly go to Lumbini and and do a, a two month retreat, which is something which I've I've wanted to do, um, and um, just because of circumstances in my work, where my work was um, some training opportunities fell through, so it was fine. I mean, I had some space to do it. My daughter's gone, gone to university, and my girlfriend's given her blessing to it. So, so I was like, okay, I can do this, and and yeah. So I'm 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 in the process of of, of trying to make that happen and do the things that I need to do, like a sabbatical, and make it happen. Um, but yeah, it's just a, a few doubts kind of come in as well, just because I think although my girlfriend's given her blessing, she's kind of got a different attitude towards Buddhism than me, and. And it feels that the more that I kind of deepen in my path, the more it, sometimes it seems like she's going off on, on a different path. So it makes me wonder about what that will mean for our relationship. As I suppose I have this idea that I'm going to do a two-month retreat and it's going to be quite significant. <laughs> it's going to change me. Um, and, then, and then also, although my daughter's gone to university, it's her second week, it's turning out that she's not too happy at the moment at university. So I'm thinking, oh... Maybe I won't be around for a couple of months. You know, what's she going to be like? You know, so, so it's just about that, really. About it feels like quite a, um, an important decision to go away for two months and with the intention of really deepening in my practice and really kind of like refining and, and zeroing in. Obviously, I want to make the most of that. I just wondered if you just had some, some words of wisdom. <laughs> for me regarding that, that decision and, and the process and undertaking. Well, I, I never make people's decisions for them. No. <laughs> uh, but uh, as a policy, so don't take it personally, but I never do that. Um, but uh, in terms of decision-making based on, on wisdom and attunement rather than on, um, how do you say, idealism, or obligation, um, then what the, what's most helpful is to to uh, take some time in meditation to sit, let your mind go as quiet as possible, and just ask yourself the, 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 with with all preconceptions and biases laid aside to the degree that they can be laid aside, and then just as the mind as quiet as possible, just just invite that question in. Yeah. Uh, Will it be, and you can phrase it for yourself, but some phrasing like, um, will it be for the greatest benefit if I go to do a two-month retreat in Nepal? 
that's it. Just simple as the simpler, the better. Will it be for the greatest benefit if I do this? Mm-hmm. And then just see what arises. Because oftentimes our, our heads are so filled with shoulds and shouldn'ts and lists of pros and cons. There's so much verbiage in there. We can't, we can't tell what we really feel. Mm-hmm. Because what, what will they think and what I should do and what I said I would and I always, I've always felt this but I want to do that. And blah, 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 blah. You know, the, the mind can be so filled with just um, chatter. And, that, uh, and really heartfelt questions that we've been maybe living with for years, it's, it's such a blur of mental creation around it that we, we, we can't uh, discern our own intuition. And it's interesting how sometimes just giving ourselves the space to do nothing else, have not, it's not in the middle of anything else, to just give ourselves the opportunity to ask a, a question, say, What's really important to me here? What do I really feel about this relationship? What's the most important thing? And just to, to keep it really simple, just let the mind be as quiet as possible, just drop that in. And this works for all kinds of areas of, uh, of life. Just drop that in and see what arises. And, uh, uh, and sometimes it can be surprising how immediate the, the response is like, duh, <laughs> of course you should do A or B or, or, uh, or it can be the opposite. It can be the reason why you're confused or you can't decide is because this is undecidable. You can't know. There's too many, there's too many variables. That's why you can't decide. There's, there's too many unknowns here. And even that can be quite a relief. It's like, oh, I was trying to think my way to a solution. <laughs> but... It's an equation with 150 variables. It's not possible. So, uh, just that simple process, using the meditation to draw upon your own wisdom. So you can think of it as consulting your own oracle. <coughs> the, the, uh, your, the oracle of wisdom is right inside you. <laughs> and to, to let that um, question just... Uh, and be um, be formed and see what arises, mm-hmm. and and keep returning to that. Uh, perhaps because uh, I think I have done that, and there's been times when it's it's very clear to me, and then and then and then, and then something changes. Some something might happen, or somebody <laughs> might say something. My girlfriend might say, "Oh, it's two months. It's a long time," <laughs> or, or or something like that. And then I'd be like, "Oh, she's going to be okay." Well, that's my advice. No, no. <laughs> That's the, that's the package that's offered. So. Okay, so that's the end of the Sunday Talks for 2017. Thank you all for your good attention and good questions. And uh, may you be well. I'm sure our paths will cross, well, I suspect our paths will cross between now and July of 2018. But uh, go well in the meantime. <laughs>